The press has gotten a bit of a bad rap recently. With allegations of fake news, bias, and sensationalism floating around, it's become increasingly difficult to differentiate between fact and fiction. A recent analysis by NPR found that articles from politically charged news outlets, such as The Daily Wire, received far more engagement on social media than articles from legacy news outlets, such as The New York Times. The psychology behind confirmation bias dictates that people tend to favor perspectives, posts, and articles that align with the beliefs they already hold. So that begs the question, what role does investigative journalism play in today's world? In other words, how can journalists introduce the public to new, unpleasant facts about social injustices that need to be addressed? My name is Rhea Dongay. In this episode of Let's Talk Reform, Antoinette Charles and I sit down with Nicole Lewis, a staff writer for The Marshall Project, to discuss the role of investigative journalists in holding power accountable, especially when it comes to the American incarceration system and the COVID-19 pandemic. So I want to start out by asking about your background and what led you to do the work that you currently do. So my first job out of college, actually many years ago now, was as a community organizer. Um, I was really interested in, in joining with a group of people who were interested in, in finding ways to bring about more um, racial and economic justice. And so for several years, that is what I did in New York City. And um, midway in, in, you know, a few years into that work, I had the opportunity to actually write a short book about my efforts. And so in particular, I was working with people of, of color who had you know, earned or inherited wealth. So it's kind of like an, a, an inverse model of a lot of community organizing. So I was working with people who actually had wealth and privilege to, who, but understood about how much inequality was here. So we were working with them to help them sort of leverage that privilege give money away, really support grassroots organizing efforts on the ground. So a lot of those kinds of like more grassroots works and organizations don't get funded by traditional philanthropy. So it's a place where like individual donors can be very, very influential. And so I had an opportunity to kind of just like talk to everyone that I was organizing, theorize, like do interviews, and then just write out a theory of change, like to write a story about how we do our work, why it matters, what's at stake, what's important. And the thing that I very quickly realized is that I was both better at the writing and reporting part, and that the written word, right, once the book came out and we were able to talk about it, that the written word had the same power and potential to reach a large community of people, to get them thinking about an issue, to change their minds, right? To start a conversation, that it was a huge tool, right? For the same kinds of, of, of advocacy things that, that I was already doing. And so that was the moment where I said, okay, it's, I should probably really go into journalism and, and you know I'm more comfortable there and I think it could kind of do the same thing and so fast forward you know many number of years I went to grad school and I started at the Washington Post which was a great experience but I knew that I always wanted to kind of come back to those roots right to the the, the very work that I started when I was like 21 um, and trying to make change in the world like that was what was really it spoke to me as a person and so there are definitely journalism organizations out there that do work like the Marshall Project, right? So Marshall Project was high on my list. I was like, they're doing great work. They're directly engaged 
in an unjust system. They openly state, you know, are very clear about how that system has huge racial biases in it. It obviously has huge economic biases in it, right? And so I thought, okay, this seems like a very good, very natural fit. And I got really lucky. And at first it was sort of just like a general staff writer, someone who kind of come in and, and write about any, you know, any issue that they found interesting. Um, this is my fourth year with the organization. And so over time, I've really developed more of a focus and expertise, um, really thinking about, you know, the issues on the inside that, that directly impact, in, you know, incur currently incarcerated people. So a lot of that might look like writing about conditions and when there was a strike, right? I wrote about that. Um, and then some of the other part of my work is about felony disenfranchisement. So um, so it's sort of, you know, a lot of two very different things. Um, but I've spent I've spent a great deal of this past year, obviously, writing about the pandemic behind bars and really trying to understand what it has meant for incarcerated people, what it's meant for their families. And it's just, yeah, it's very fulfilling, it's hard work, but it really kind of takes me back to that like hopeful, idealistic 20 something that, that said, you know, community organizing, that's the sort of way to go. Well, it's very profound to just hear about someone as yourself speaking about the economic aspect of it, because I feel like it tends to be left out. Even within our own community, there is a lot of opportunities for us to be able to go back and utilize the influence that we have, whether it's education, whether it's our own finances to help support these grassroots efforts. But kind of going into what you were talking about in felony disenfranchisement, for our followers and our listeners who don't necessarily understand what that is, do you mind sharing what that is and the work that you did that was profound to you? Absolutely. So yes, yeah, so felony disenfranchisement refers to the set of laws, um, you know, different in every state that for the most part bar people with felony convictions from voting. So we have this idea for the most part that, you know, if you commit a crime and it's a felony and you go to prison and you're going to do some prison time, you cannot vote. And the history of these laws are pretty mixed. So in some places, they started as early as like post-revolutionary America, where the notion was like, you violated the social contract and therefore you're like banished from social life, right? So that for sure was happening in some places. But in other states, this was a direct assault on Black people's political power. So these are laws that cropped up mostly in the South after the um, Civil War and during, um, you know, after Reconstruction ended and during this period of, of Jim Crow, like this huge period of, of racial, um, racial reckoning, racial backlash, right, to, to progress. And so, um, so my work has really focused on the fact that actually many of these laws are changing now. So many states are kind of rethinking this connection that's based on, you know, incredible work from people on the ground who are saying like, why do we keep doing this? We can clearly see that the law was racist in its intent, that like truly segregationist senators, you know, in, this, in their states were like standing up and saying, we need to do something about all these black people voting. And so it started to sort of fall out of favor a little bit. And so many states, have expanded the franchise mostly to people who are out, out of prison. So they're either on probation or parole. Some states, right, some advocates are like pushing to get um, felony disenfranchisement laws completely struck down so that people in prison 
can vote as well. So one such case is Washington, D.C. has actually succeeded in this. So they're they join Maine and Vermont, which are the only two states in which everyone in prison can vote. In many other places, some people can, kind of depending on the crimes, depending on the law. So that's that's the sort of scope. And so the work that's been um, really meaningful to me in that arena is right before the pandemic actually kind of coincided with the pandemic happening, we released a political poll of about 8,000 currently incarcerated people. Um, so we built up a tool that allowed us to kind of ask them questions about their political views to understand, you know, who would they vote for in the election? What kinds of issues matter to them? And um, I just think it was incredible because for the most part, this community's overlooked. Like they, nobody cares about what their politics are. They're in prison, they can't vote. Um, but we know most people come home after prison, like the majority of people are not going to be there for the rest of their life. And with all these laws changing, they're coming back into states and like might actually have the opportunity to vote for the first time. So it was just a, a really important kind of um, moment to get a better understanding of like what matters to them. Are we talking about is everybody behind bars like a Democrat? Like what's the landscape look like? And, and what we found there's this perception that that most people behind bars are Democrats are like liberal or going to be progressive. And that's just not exactly the case, right? People in prison are not monolithic. Um, they have many different ideas about how this country should operate. Um, so we found at the time plenty of support for Donald Trump or for independent candidates, right? Um, just a, a lot of like rich and robust um, ideas. And so that was just a very fun, groundbreaking project and has built a lot of the work that I do now. I love what you said about the incarcerated population not being a monolith, because I think too often people assume that because it's easier because, you know, out of sight, out of mind, like people assume that it's just one group and that there isn't much nuance, which in fact there is. If felony disenfranchisement laws were eradicated across the country in more states than there are currently, what do you think would change, if anything, in the political landscape? So that is like the important question here, right? It is just like the thing that we're always trying to, to get at. And so the way that it's been, I have lots of thoughts um, and I've spoken to plenty of researchers who have lots of ideas as well. And so, I sort of think about it like this. Incarcerated people tend to come from communities that are right, maybe low income, um, maybe have like low rates of educational attainment, disproportionately obviously people of color and disproportionately black in particular, right? Um, so we're talking about like people who, who have a clear picture of uh, economic system that isn't working, who have a clear picture of racism and discrimination, who might be thinking more deeply about the way that poverty shapes their lives. And so we can sort of surmise that if we were actually able to get all those people back into the electorate, that politicians might actually have to think about policies that matter to them directly, right? They would really have to think about policies that would impact folks' lives. I think you'd be having a very different kind of conversation about things like raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, for example. So that was one of the findings that we found in our survey was that higher rates of incarcerated Republicans supported raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, right? And this makes sense to me because here we have a community of people, regardless of their political affiliation, 
they're in a system, their labor is extremely exploited, right? They're working in prisons, making like pennies on the dollar. And so, hello, of course, raise the minimum wage, right? But outside of prison, we see that that's such a partisan issue um, that like Republicans tend not to support it, Democrats like it, right? And so I think just really thinking systematically about what people in prison what people who come out of prison, what they're experiencing, we can kind of surmise that there just might be all kinds of like more progressive issues that are really targeted at poverty, really targeted at like leveling the economic playing field, right? Really targeted at making the justice system uh, function better, right? This is a community of people who very much understand that taxpayer money is being wasted that people are not being rehabilitated inside of prisons, right? They can just draw on this lived experience to think about um, the kinds of policies that should be implemented. And so I think the challenge is that there's a lot of work that has to be done to get these folks to like to register and to vote, right? There's just like continuous. So that's some of the work I'm reporting on now. Um, but I think that that generally gives you a picture of like how things could, could change. Felony and disenfranchisement laws disproportionately affect Black people, right? Not just the broad community of people of color, but Black people in particular. And so I think, again, there's a whole host of issues that are might be more relevant to Black people's lives that if they could vote in big numbers and felt that there was that agency, right, politicians would really have to take those things seriously. Like, we might be having a different conversation about policing if a voting block of, of, of Black people and justice-involved Black people were able to get to the polls. And in some ways, it sounds like a lot of the ideological viewpoints that would come from all of these new people entering the electorate would sort of bridge the gaps between a lot of uh, on a lot of bipartisan issues. So, I mean, you mentioned the minimum wage is one. Another one would be perhaps justice-related policies. Absolutely. There's a segment of the conservative community, right? The sort of libertarian portion of it that doesn't, that really wants government kind of like out of their business. They just, they're really proponents for small government, right? So they're not sort of like a more conservative ideology. Now imagine if you're an incarcerated person, the government has intervened on your life in major ways, right? The court system, the police, the prison system, the jail system, your whole life has been sort of bound up by the government directly taking away and messing with your sense of liberty and autonomy. And so I think there's big questions about how then do we, how then would incarcerated people kind of interpret some policies that would, that are seeking to like limit the government's influence on our lives. I think some of those things actually could be slightly more progressive than the traditional conservative like modeling. So there's a tension there. It's not so cut and dry. Like if you want to make an argument about limiting police's role in people's lives, well, you know, in some ways that's, it's a little libertarian, right? It's like, but it also has like profound uh, impact on poor people's lives, on black people's lives, on, you know, Latino people's lives. Like it could really make a difference. So I think it's just, it's interesting. Like it's, it's not cut and dry at all. So how do we move toward making this the norm for more states, not just Maine, Vermont, DC, but in other places in the United States? So I think that's where my work 
really comes in, right? Of just being a journalist, being someone who is thinking about these issues all the time, trying to find ways to explain things that might be kind of complicated to, you know, the general public, right? So like, maybe people don't even know what felony disenfranchisement laws are in the first place. And so it's my job to kind of think about how do we explain it? How do we make it digestible? Um, and then I'm also always thinking about like, what are the, what's important for people to know, right? What's changing? Um, what have states figured out? What has DC figured out? How, how is it going? Like it's sort of my job. I think of my role as the person who's going, seeking out that information and then turning it out in a way that, that people can latch onto, that people can understand that that might change people's minds. It might make them have additional questions. Um, it might show them the power, right? Maybe people just didn't even know that a lot of their disenfranchisement laws were based in the Jim Crow era because we don't get, most of us don't get taught that in, in our history classes. We just don't, right? And so maybe they don't like that idea at all and they will want to change it. And so I think that, that journalism really has the power to kind of unearth just important issues, to raise them up, to bring them, bring them out and um, just to kind of get people kind of talking and thinking about how things could be, could be different. Um, and, and also to give people kind of concrete ideas from places where things have changed. Um, so I'm working on a story now that's all about what organizers were able to do um, in the 2020 election to get people who were formerly incarcerated registered, right? And so I think like, great. So this is my job to, to highlight kind of the best practices in particular states to say, here's what worked really well, or here's what didn't work. And so those other place states can kind of take that information and say, okay, maybe we'll try this too. It's really interesting at the, that within our country and the different states that we have, no one has laws that are exactly the same. And there's just a lot of confusion and not so much of crosstalk between each other in terms of, you know, who's doing what. So I really do appreciate the fact that you're elevating the voices of the people who are doing their job correctly and doing a really good job at like making sure that people who are disenfranchised and the imprisoned are getting the support that they need to vote and kind of just get back into society and doing things of societal norms. In terms of the projects that you're working on now and the paper that you're working on now, what were some of the things that you found out were actually good with this past election and just the initiatives that they were doing that really did help support people getting back into society? I would say the biggest thing that we found is states that were able to get the corrections department, probation and parole um, to cooperate with them had a, a much easier job. And so in particular, what I mean by that is most states change the laws, but if they don't notify people that the law has changed, right, people just go on believing that their felony conviction means that they can't vote. And so this is a place where implementation of the law becomes so important. Um, you know, multiple people raised up this question of like, what good is changing a law if you don't tell anybody about it, right? And in some cases, it's like, it's less clear that it matters that you know, but in this case, it's very clear that people need to know, right? Because people are living under the assumption that they committed a crime, they received a felony, and that's it for them. So states that were able to really get the corrections department, probation and parole to notify people had a much easier job, right? They were just 
able to kind of hit the ground running to know that people had at least some basis of understanding the, the legal changes. And then they could make a bigger case for why this matters. It says nothing about the organizers, right? Though that decision um, is really left up to the state agencies. Um, they were not required in any of the states that we looked at to notify anybody. So they could just drag their feet if they weren't interested, if they don't support it. And imagine for them, in some cases, many of those officials are not elected. So like person who oversees the correction board, that's not an elected position, but sheriffs are and district attorneys are. And so I think there's there could be some fear in that if you tell people that they can vote and then they take the opportunity to vote, that they, they might shift the balance of power because they've been interacting with your agency. You know, they understand how it works. And so I think that that's why you see some of this, uh, uh, some limited cooperation. And then other than that, organizers really had to get very creative. Um, unfortunately, right, the election also coincided with the pandemic. So it meant that they couldn't really meet people in person. They couldn't do door knocking. And so they're really hopeful that they're able to do that this time around. Um, so to go into like high incarceration neighborhoods and kind of find people and build trust. I think they're also hoping to like slow the process down a little bit. So in the run up to 2020, in the pandemic, like a lot of places didn't have a lot of time. They didn't have the time that they wanted to be able to sit with people. Um, this work is mostly led by formerly incarcerated people as well. And so they understand, you know, very personally how hard the experience of incarceration is, like how much trauma or baggage, as they said, kind of comes out of there. And so they all wanted to kind of just be able to take their time as they engage with people um, get to know them or really just make the case, see them as human, as opposed to some sort of, you know, rushed, like go register. It's so important. Um, and so I think they're really hoping to kind of take that time, build those relationships, meet people in person. 2020 certainly had plenty of elections that were consequential to them, but the midterms often have even more because it's a lot of local races, it's sheriffs, it's district, district attorneys, it's judges, right? Um, it's, um, you know, local council people, right? And so the organizers are really trying to make the case to say, hey, we have an opportunity here to change how the system operates. If you had a bad experience in your local jail, well, hey, the sheriff who runs that local jail might be up for reelection, right? So you have an opportunity to kind of directly weigh in on, on who runs the system that you just experienced. And so that's the really biggest appeal they're, they're trying to make. They're trying to help people really understand just that important connection to just local races, races that, that will determine the policy and determine the, the conversations happening around criminal justice reform um, in each of those states, right? And big, big things are, are happening right now, especially after the past summer that we just had. I completely agree with the fact that we really have to emphasize the importance of local elections because all of our lives we were taught, oh yeah, like you have to vote for the president, you have to vote for the Congress and things of that nature. But then at the end of the day, the people who are really making a difference and doing things that impact our community our local officials and early voting is the biggest strategy that we can do. And I know that grassroots organizers have been making an effort to do that because for example, in my city in Stone Mountain, Georgia, the way that they ran our elections and just voting registries and things of that nature, we only had like two or three places 
that we could vote within our city versus maybe more affluent cities had more locations, they had more flexible hours, whereas ours was kind of like doing work time. So I love to hear the fact that organizers are really meeting people where they're at in their communities, having discussions. And it just goes to show the importance of talking just because as of us, we can easily pull out our computer, but then with the digital divide, people don't necessarily have access to those same resources. So for people who are formerly incarcerated and would like to get involved into this work, what would be some of the recommendations that you would have in terms of finding their local organizations and kind of just hitting the ground running? Can I say one thing about Georgia before I answer? Because I think that Georgia is such an important um, like case study, what happened in 2020, right? And the effort from primarily Black women on the ground to organize people who had not voted before. And so oftentimes campaigns and politicians are like most interested in like in like likely voters, voters they know who will turn out, who like obviously support, they'll tailor their whole campaign, they'll tailor their whole door knocking strategy to those people. And so this was a moment in time to say, actually, there are a lot of people who haven't engaged at all. They matter too. And so the same case is being made for formerly incarcerated people um, across the country, right? These organizers understand that they've been neglected. They've been overlooked by political campaigns for, for generations, for decades, right? Because people couldn't vote and now they can. And so they're really hoping to kind of replicate the success that, that happened in Georgia to say like, we can actually turn out people who have never voted before if we stress to them just how important it is to engage on a local level. So that's, so I think Georgia is just such a um, important example and right, everything that's happening now in response to the fact that more people turned turned out and, and voted and Democrats got these two Senate seats, right? People are very upset about that and they're doing everything they can to try to suppress the vote um, felony disenfranchisement and, you know, state agencies not notifying, right, just all the confusion is absolutely also a form of voter suppression, right? It, it's not just about punishment. <laughs> it's about making sure that certain groups of people don't have the same access. Um, and so I think that that conversation is really starting to take, take root and, and Georgia offers a little window into like the potential power of getting those folks back. So with formerly incarcerated people, how can they kind of get involved with these efforts in their local communities and how can they get the ground running? Yeah, I mean, I'd say, again, this work, everyone that I spoke to who's leading this work, you know, in Nevada, in Kentucky, in Iowa, New Jersey was another one. They're all formerly incarcerated. These are people who spend time in prison and who are now on the ground, like really trying to register people. And so there's a lot of room and opportunity to volunteer, to kind of step up, to say, you know, I'll go talk to 10 of my friends. I'll go knock on doors in my housing complex. Like, you know, I will, I can take that on. Um, I think that there's um, a big need for just people who, who, who really get it and who want to show up. Um, and so, you know, find the local community organization um, that's trying to do this work and just, you can ask them like, how can I help? In some cases, for the most part, everyone who's um, leading the organizing is also being paid to do it. So I'd say seek, seek out those opportunities, seek out the organizations, seek out the sort of more mainstream voting organizations like 
the NAACP or League of Women Voters or any kind of get out the vote effort wherever they are, because those organizations kind of need to understand the complexity of the, the felony disenfranchisement laws and the changes as well. And so they could benefit by having, you know, having formerly incarcerated people who are interested in this do direct outreach that could make things go a lot better. Um, how they can hit the ground running. I mean, if I can just plug um, the Marshall Project for a moment, I'm constantly reporting on these issues and publishing stories about them. And many of those stories wind up in a magazine that we have that's called News Inside. News Inside was created by a man named Lawrence Bartley, who uh, is formerly incarcerated himself and had this, you know, knows firsthand of just like how little information gets into prisons. And so he decided to come to the Marshall Project and make a magazine to give back to the to all the people right that he left behind, all the relationships that were still there and the people who are still there. And so it features a lot of the work that Marshall Project reporters do. Um, it's very tailored to their, you know, incarcerated people's like specific needs. We put in explainers about COVID and the vaccine. And right, we're really just thinking about like what information is useful to people on the inside. Um, but a lot of the work around voting politics, right, the survey, it was all facilitated by News Inside. And so you can contact us, right, there's contact information on the website about how to get on a subscription list. If you're a family member, you can contact us to figure out how you can send it to someone in prison, right? I mean, I'd say like, that's sort of the best way that, that I can think of at this point um, of like, in keeping yourself informed, engaging, right, coming up with questions. Um, and then of course, right, in some of those articles, the organizations doing the work are listed and they're named. And so then you come out and you like, you're like, oh, I wanna get in touch with New Jersey uh, Institute for Social Justice because I saw their work, you know, in this piece about voting rights and um, there it seems like they're doing good stuff. And so I think News Inside is just, just a really fantastic um, resource. That's really awesome. And thank you again for all of the great work that you're doing with the Marshall Project. So you brought up COVID and I'm interested to know because you recently, I think last month published a piece on the impact of COVID-19 in prisons and people's experiences with that based on a survey done by the Marshall Project. So how has COVID-19 impacted prisons and especially people who have been incarcerated differently from people who have not? Yeah, I mean, COVID has been really, the pandemic has been very devastating for people behind bars. Every week we update uh, what we call our COVID tracker that takes a look at the number of cases behind bars. And so, you know, about 400,000 people have contracted COVID. Uh, goodness, I'm saying that now and it's May and that could change again, right? In a few weeks and, and by June, it could be higher. And so, um, at some point, at one point um, during the pandemic, the infection rate behind bars was more than three times uh, the average of the infection rate outside of prison, right? And so, wow, yeah, I mean, it just really devastating. It just goes to show you, right? And this is something that like, in some ways we at the Marshall Project and many other organizations I know just really could anticipate, right? Because we're talking about a highly contagious, airborne virus inside of a setting in which people cannot social distance. Um, in some cases, people don't have access to basic hygiene products like soap, right? Or hand sanitizer, or, and they didn't absolutely did not have masks in the beginning, right? And we didn't know that that was important. And so 
I heard and remember speaking to many people, you know, over a year ago now that, oh, well, aren't incarcerated people safer because they're like incarcerated, they're like away, they're separate. But that really shows how much we don't understand, right, about prison. People who work in the prison come in and out every day. That is a huge route for transmission. Um, and so it meant that the people who go home to their families and come back in brought the virus in with them and the virus just spread and spread and spread. Pretty much every person on our staff at one point or another has written some story about COVID, some component of it, right, behind bars. And so we could see pretty clearly that the system was not prepared um, for this. There were many policy-based missteps, right? In some cases, it was as simple as just not testing enough people, just not testing. Right? You know, it's tricky because at the start of the pandemic, there just weren't tests available. And so people who only people who were very, very sick were being tested, but at, at a certain point that changed and some facilities still never did widespread testing. We heard reports of people being put in you know, quarantines with multiple people and then someone would test positive and then they'd have to like start the quarantine all over again, right? People were still being transferred between facilities. People were still allowed to come into, into prisons from the jail system, right? There are just a many, a whole host of things that um, really exacerbated uh, the outbreak. And maybe one of the biggest ones is we really thought at the start, um, we had this question of, well, maybe, right, in order to keep people safe, this could be a moment in which the facilities speed up the release of people who are close to getting out, who are no longer a threat, who are sick and in large numbers. And we just didn't see that happening. Some states said, okay, sure, if you're within 30 days of your release, you can get out. You know, some states like Pennsylvania has sent people home and then only to say that they have to come back. Um, so that's something we're looking into. The federal system, you know, the attorney general at the time said, you know, you have to immediately maximize releases to send people home on home confinement. I did some reporting on that and showed that, you know, that process was just incredibly slow, incredibly bureaucratic. In one case I reported, I spoke to a man for several months who, who really thought he was going home. You know, he'd been in prison for 20 some odd years and he thought, wow, my, my name is being called so much that I might make it home. Um, and he was really hopeful that he would get home before his father passed away. His father was dealing with a terminal illness and, and unfortunately that didn't happen. From everything that we saw, it sort of, the decision-making around it was very arbitrary and, you know, and, and not very compassionate. So. Any way you think about the pandemic being hard on people outside of prison from the fear and the, the death rate is magnified for people who are behind bars, um, truly. It's really disheartening just to hear like some of the stories that you're writing about in terms of the fear that people were experiencing. And it's really sad that, you know, who was getting released is a real question. I saw that you also wrote about you know people who are behind bars getting vaccinated. So what were some of the experiences that you know really stuck out to you and kind of just the consensus amongst that? Yeah, so we had this, you know, as soon as a vaccine became viable, much quicker than I think any of us thought would be, we had this big question of, 
well, what does that mean for incarcerated people? Like one policy wise, like, are they going to get it? Like our facilities going to prioritize incarcerated people to get vaccinated. And two, if they do, would incarcerated people take it, right? Given the history of um, medical research and medical experimentation in prisons, you know, we had good reason to think that incarcerated people might be very skeptical of mass vaccination efforts. We just didn't really know what, what we were going to find. And so we reached out to people to, to ask them those questions. And by and large, I'd say the top line finding was that the year of living in prison during a pandemic has been so hard for so many people that they were very interested, interested in the vaccine, right? That, that the vaccine could, was being seen as like a potential way that they could maybe see their loved ones again after having like a year of prison visits shut down, that maybe they could get out of lockdown. Maybe they would, um, you know, be able to have programming again, right? So there was just this optimism that, okay, if we're all vaccinated, like maybe we can get things back to normal. That was one of the big ideas that, that we turned up. And I will say, however, that does not mean that there was no hesitancy, right? No questions, no fears about the vaccine itself. It doesn't mean that everyone who was like, huh, maybe this would happen is gonna get vaccinated, right? People also expressed an overwhelming distrust of the medical system, right? Of the nurses and the doctors and just the staff that they interact with on a, on a regular basis. One guy I spoke to and who I'm still in good contact with, James Ellis, um, who's incarcerated in Ohio, was saying that the way the officers treat him, it's like they treat him like he's subhuman. And so it makes him feel like, how would these people who treat me like this, like they're not going to give me a life-saving vaccine, right? Like I, he doesn't buy it. It's like good reason, right, for him to be skeptical there. And so it's a sort of complex view of like, we, we are hopeful about this thing, but like we don't trust the staff to maybe administer it to us. And they've just had such bad experiences. And so that's, that's kind of what the survey turned up. What we know at this point is that a little less than half of the incarcerated population across the country has been vaccinated. We've been keeping tabs on this as well. Some systems, right, like California, Rhode Island are up into the high 70s. They've actually done really well. Some systems are way below that. And that has everything to do with um, the rollout with policy, right, with decision makers deciding when to prioritize people, right? California, Rhode Island prioritized people very quickly. You know, in the beginning, they were able to start moving like in December. You know, we had big questions about Florida. We were like waiting for months to be like, what is Florida going to do? They hadn't put anything out, right? And so a lot of that uh, says, I think it says a lot about how the system kind of thinks about the population and how they think about um, the outbreak as well. And so there's progress being made and still a lot of work to be done. It's exciting to hear that a little under half are vaccinated, but it's kind of interesting to hear the fact that correctional officers are declining it, where there is a strange power dynamic because they're also interacting with that population and they are at higher risk, but they have the privilege to be able to get it as a citizen, as opposed to waiting on an infrastructure to provide them the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, so this was something that we, when I was doing the survey directed at incarcerated people, I heard over and over again from them directly that 
correctional officers were like declining to get vaccinated. I heard that correctional officers were like stoking fears and about the vaccine and saying, oh, um, it's dangerous. People have died. I'm not going to take it. You know, they're really sort of um, stirring up these fears. And so I said to myself and to my editor, I said, we should probably look deeper into this. Like this is kind of a big deal, um, especially because incarcerated people don't have the ability to do their own research, right? There's no internet. They can't just go out and say, well, let me confirm and let me see what's true and what's not true. And we also know that the internet is a complicated place where uh, some of the biggest conspiracy theories about the vaccine have circulated on the internet and on social media. So, you know, your answers might not even be answered in a factual manner. Um, and so we looked, we did, we looked deeper at to say, okay, well, you know, is this an isolated thing or is it happening across the country? And, and what we found by and large is many state systems, um, correctional officers were declining at, at alarming rates, right? Really higher rates in some cases than the incarcerated themselves. Um, and there's many reasons for that. Uh, we dug into, I'd say the biggest one is that um, correctional officers tend to be um, overwhelmingly white male. They lean conservative, like lean Republican. And that group is, uh, has been the biggest group with the highest rate of like hesitancy or, or skepticism or the biggest group of people who said that they're not interested in being vaccinated. Um, so that overlaps, you know, um, some people have latched on to conspiracy theories, right? That they're microchips, just all kinds of things. Um, and there's a big sort of social component to this as well. We could sort of see like there was a poll in a Florida, Florida Facebook group for corrections officers. And, you know, the majority of people who took that poll said, hell no, we're not getting vaccinated. And so you can kind of see there's just this social dynamic of like, if your peers aren't going to do it and then you're not going to do it too. But it's a huge issue. It matters um, in many, many ways because for one, incarcerated people themselves cannot social distance, right? They can't choose to stay six feet away from a corrections officer. They can't choose to not interact with them. So that's one thing. So it puts them at risk, right? Another thing is that we keep hearing um, that corrections officers often don't wear their masks behind bars. So, right, so it, this is just a big route. If they're unvaccinated, they're not wearing their masks, you can't social distance, the virus can keep spreading. And then the other sort of most important point, right, the sort of like clearest point that all these public health people were making is if we have any interest in really controlling the pandemic, both inside and outside of prison, if you really want to get out of this, I would say a couple of things. One is um, we need you. <laughs> so um, we need you, right? We need more people thinking about figuring out how you can be, develop a particular expertise. And so what I mean by that is I focus on felony disenfranchisement. I do reporting that is because of the work that I've done around surveying, I'm able to do reporting in a different way with incarcerated people because I have access to so many people now, right? And so I've developed this expertise around understanding how a certain set of laws work, of finding out how to reach people. Um, and so if, so if you're interested in, let's say, healthcare or interested in social or economic, you know, social issues or economic issues or whatever it is, figuring out how you can really understand that particular system, how it operates, who the major players are, what the laws are that govern it, who the regulating bodies are, right? 
who the victims or the potential people who are like affected by it are, it makes you um, so much more like adept at coming up with meaningful story ideas um, with really getting to the root of some of the biggest like harms that happen, right? That these, these issues are not like abstract. They're like very grounded. They're very real. They have huge impacts on, on people's actual lives. Um, and so, you know, it, you can, you can develop that expertise as a journalist, um, but it also means that people who have worked in those institutions who come from the outside can find a way to translate that skill set, right, and become a journalist, right? There's like someone like me who was an organizer first, thinking about like campaigns and power and politics, right, can leverage all of that for now that I'm writing about felony disenfranchisement. So uh, we need to have herd immunity. We need to have tons of people vaccinated, right? We need to get the hot spots which prisons have been under control. Um, we need to get those outbreaks suppressed. We can't have this virus spreading in, our, in large numbers. And so that's one of the biggest things here. And it's just a reminder that like corrections officials go into prisons, which have been hotspots, and then they go home, they go into the community, right? And that is a big route of transmission. That's a pathway for the virus to spread you know, into the grocery store and into, you know, into the picnic that you're having on this, right? It, it, it just, prisons are not separate um, from the rest of the world. And so um, they're really making the case to say, you know, we, we got to figure out a way to, to address, to address this. You're absolutely right. We do need to figure out a way to address this. And I think part of that starts with some of the work that you and other investigative journalists are doing, which is spreading the correct information and trying to get it to the people who need it. So with that, um, I have one final question for you. And that is, what advice would you provide to someone who's considering a, a career in investigative journalism with an eye towards social justice reform? That is such a good question. You know, you may find yourself like in a career that you're like not that excited about and you're like, oh, you know, consider applying that knowledge base, your insider knowledge, right, to becoming an investigative journalist, certainly thinking about um, how you can leverage that and like explain things to people in a, in a new and meaningful way. Um, there's no reason that, that that cannot happen. The way society operates, thinking about policy, thinking about elected officials, thinking about how to hold people accountable, thinking about whether or not the rules are made fair and if they're being followed and all these kinds of things. I'd say the biggest thing to, to consider, to think about is we need as many people as we can get. We need people from, um, we need a diversity of people, right? this industry and our work in particular is like overwhelmingly concentrated um, on the East Coast and on the West Coast, right? And so we need people who come from the South and who grew up in poverty and, you know, are the first in their families to go to college, like, because that it's personal experience, right? That understanding of how systems work in your own life allows you to tell much better stories. Um, and it allows you to think about like a much more diverse community of people, right? To, to tailor your stories that way. So. That's what I would say. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Reform. If you'd like to learn more about the Marshall Project, please visit their official website at themarshallproject.org. If you'd like to read Nicole's articles on felony disenfranchisement and the impact of COVID-19 in the American prison system, 
please visit the links included in our episode description. See you next time.